quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Tech tumble, the Nasdaq index facing a third day of losses. Vaccine vow, global drug makers promise to put safety before speed. And a Mulan misfire, Disney facing criticism over its latest movie release. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us as we turn the calendar and begin the fall season on Wall Street. Let's call it an early fall, too, for tech as the recent selling pressure we've seen in these names accelerates. I'll give you a look. Nasdaq futures off right now by, what, almost 3%. Wow, that's moving as I speak. We're pretty much at the session lows. Apple, Amazon, Microsoft and Tesla all sharply lower pre-market. There's real disappointment, I think, as you can see there, for Tesla investors on news. It won't be entering the S&P 500 as soon as many had hoped. In the meantime, the so-called Nasdaq whale SoftBank belly flopped again today, falling more than half a percent after Monday's 7% plunge. Investors worrying, I think, that SoftBank's risky bets on tech were a driving force in the summer rally. The big question is what remains of those bets and what happens if the tech losses that we're seeing in stocks deepens? Either way, the road ahead looks more challenging from here. In Washington, Congress back but there's insufficient urgency on new aid to the unemployed. Political positions remain entrenched and perhaps reinforced by recent jobs data, Friday's data. The fact is, better than expected in these numbers can still mean they're dire. The big hope remains a vaccine. The biggest buyer of pharma CEOs, as I mentioned, they're pledging today to put safety first. All the details next. Here's a quick look in the meantime at Asia. It finished higher, but the economic outlook there also remains pretty cloudy. Chinese exports, though, a bright spot up almost 10 percent from last year's levels. Exports, meanwhile, to the United States actually soared 20 percent. This coming just as President Trump starts discussing a decoupling of the two great nations. He did that yesterday. Not what the data suggests. As ever, lots to discuss. Let's get to the drivers. Paula Monica joins us now. Paul, let's talk about stocks first. Are we seeing a healthy, I've seen it called healthy consolidation here for some of the tech names that have done so well this year? Or is that pillar perhaps wobbling a little bit more firmly than we'd like? Yeah, that is the big question, Julia. Has this sell-off that has taken place in the past couple of days and looks like it'll continue today, is it just a reset because maybe the expectations got a little too uh, high and the valuations way too buoyant? Or is this a case where we now need to have more than just a correction, maybe another bear market? I mean, I think a lot of people are stunned by how rapid the recovery in the stock market has been 
since that big sell-off in March when COVID-19 really became a major story in the United States. And all of a sudden, investors started to write off concerns about a second wave and what was going to happen to the economy and just got right back into the stock market. And now we're seeing evidence that maybe that rally in tech stocks was a little bit uh, you know, artificial. It was inflated by Masasan and SoftBank, perhaps. Yeah, fascinating. And of course, stimulus. I think we still underestimate the scale of what the Federal Reserve has done here. They're going to buy more stuff, more assets, including corporate debt of some of the biggest nations in this country, more this year than they did in the 12 years following the financial crisis. So I think this is also something that we have to get a grip on. It also plays into the recovery, Paul. What kind of recovery are we looking at here? And should we be talking about more than one recovery? The rich are doing okay, the poorer are getting crushed. Yeah, I think you, again, you have to separate the recovery that we have seen in the stock market that may be now stalling from the actual economic recovery. And I think when you look at the economy, this does remind me a lot of 2008. And back then, I coined a term called the barbecue recovery, that it was going to be a low and slow, very gradual simmer back in the economy. And that's kind of what happened. And I think even though you're seeing, you know, the Atlanta Fed, some estimates that Q3 GDP is going to be, you know, kind of skyrocketing back, it's still going to take a long time for the real economy to reset and get back to where it was pre-COVID. And I think a lot of that has to do with many people are out of jobs permanently. Many people are adjusting to the new reality of working from home, especially parents with kids trying to juggle school and work. And without a vaccine, I think you're going to have a certain lack of confidence that will persist. And it's going to take some time before we have anything resembling normal. Yeah, the stop-start recovery, Paul, just adding to the letters, the alphabet soup of potential recoveries, a B, a B and a Q there. Thank you for that, Paul and Monica. Thank you. Great to have you with us. All right, President Trump blaming Democrats for the stimulus stalemate. In his Labor Day press conference, the president said he doesn't need to meet with them to simply be turned down. I am taking the high road. I'm taking the high road by not seeing them. That's the high road. They don't want to make a deal because they think that if the country does as badly as possible, even though a lot of people are being hurt, that's good for the Democrats. But David, that's a bad thing. John Harwood is live in Washington. John, I'd argue there's no moral high road here when millions of people are struggling to pay the bills and and feed their families. But the problem is the data seems to be entrenching the Republicans on their side and the polls, perhaps, the politics here for the Democrats mean they don't see a reason to negotiate either. Well, we haven't so far, uh, Julia, seen the real uh, tough economic impact of the lapsing of fiscal support. Uh, We have seen job growth slow down over the last couple of months. That's an indication of a wobble uh, in that recovery. The president calls it a super V, but as uh, Paul was just indicating to you, it's more likely to be uh, longer, slower, more tepid. Uh, But uh, in September and October, it is possible that we begin to see the pain of the uh, reduction or the elimination of those federal unemployment 
uh, benefits, although they're, the president's taken some limit action to offset that, uh, and also the uh, potential for big layoffs in state and local governments, which uh, are, uh, saw their revenues collapse over the course of the year. Uh, that's the real challenge. But when that shows up and whether it shows up in enough time for uh, Congress to uh, make a compromise, the, of course, the Democrats uh, in May passed a $3 trillion bill. Republicans waited. They were thinking that they didn't need to do anything. Then they came up with a, a bill that was uh, around a trillion dollars, a little more than a trillion dollars. And the question is, what is the uh, deal space in between there? Uh, Republicans don't want to spend uh, a lot of that money. And the question is, when does President Trump feel the economic heat force them to uh, get back and uh, get closer to the Democratic number? That's when you may get a deal. Does that happen before the election, John? Uh, I wouldn't bet on it at this point. We saw comments from Mitch McConnell the other day saying, I'd like to see another bill, but I wouldn't uh, guarantee one. And that was a, a sign to me, I think, that he believes the time's running out. Obviously, uh, shortly, the uh, uh, Congress is going to have to uh, pass a, a stopgap funding bill to prevent the government from shutting down. I think they will do that. Uh, but whether or not they can find somewhere in the one and a half, two trillion dollar range, which would be the midpoint between the two parties' positions, is just not clear. Yeah, it means whoever wins the election is going to have a, a weaker economy to try and pick up the pieces from. John Howard, thank you so much for that. Safety over speed. Nine vaccine developers are making an unusual pledge to uphold what they call high ethical standards when it comes to producing a COVID-19 vaccine. Let's get to our senior medical correspondent, Elizabeth Cohen, who has all the details on this. This is basically some of the biggest pharma CEOs in the world saying we're not going to allow the pressure or the politicization here of regulators because we're not going to ask for approval until we've got the assurance on the safety and the efficacy of this vaccine. Is that right? Julia, that's right. And actually, it's pretty sad that they feel the need to make this declaration. It's, it's kind of like farmers pledging not to sell sour milk. Well, I just sort of assume that farmers would not sell sour milk. I think we should assume that vaccine makers would not apply to get permission to market a vaccine that has not been shown to be safe and effective. So it is sort of a comment on sort of the sorry state of things when they feel compelled to, to make this pledge. But the reason they do, or one of the reasons they do, is that at least in the United States, the public is just not so enthusiastic about this vaccine. There's a lot of hesitation and these vaccine makers want to sort of build up confidence in their products. I mean, that's part of it, too. And, and it feeds into the timing here. We're all desperate for a vaccine, but we have to get the phase three trials, the comprehensive trials done. And we know that simply getting a broad spectrum of people to enroll in these trials has been a real challenge. And now there's ads focusing on trying to get the minorities on board. Talk us through what we're seeing. That's right. So these are ads that are going to start running today in the United States on major networks, as well as networks that are focused on the black and Latino communities. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to encourage black people and Latino people to enroll in these clinical trials. It's been a real problem. The numbers have not been nearly high enough and they want to encourage more enrollment because one, you need to test vaccines out on a diverse group so you can see how different groups respond to it. But also, Julia, on a more practical level, in order for vaccine trials to work, you have to test the vaccines out in people who are at a high risk for getting for coming into contact 
contact with COVID-19. And unfortunately, in the U.S., minorities are more than twice as likely to come in contact with COVID-19 than white people. Um, so let's take a look at what the trials are supposed to be doing and what actually is happening. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the top infectious disease doctor in the U.S., he wants 64 percent of the trials to be from minorities, whereas when you look at Moderna, it's only 26 wow. percent. Pfizer, it's only 19 percent. So it's not nearly as high. Now, Dr. Fauci's number is high. It's really kind of aspirational, but you can see they're not even anywhere close. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge gap. Let's hope some of these uh, advertising campaigns work. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your wisdom, as always. Elizabeth Cohen there. Now, as we were mentioning there, Pfizer partnering on their vaccine research with a firm called BioNTech, who seem pretty confident that their vaccine could be ready for approval as early as the middle of October. Fred Plekin joins us live now from Berlin, and he's been speaking to the company's CEO and lead scientist. Fred, great to have you with us. There's a huge difference between getting approval and distributing that vaccine, but these guys seem pretty confident. Well, well, they certainly do. And they do say that they think that they could do this or, or could get the uh, get ready for uh, approval by the middle of October. But they also say that there are some unknowns. And, and, and interestingly, it ties into exactly what Elizabeth was just saying, that obviously right now they are on these very large phase three trials where a lot of people are trying this out with uh, trying out the vaccine candidate. But of course, a lot of people need to be exposed to the coronavirus. And they say they're still collating that data right now. And only the moment they have enough people who have been exposed to it and where the virus has been fought off by their vaccine candidate, only then are they going to be able to submit it for approval. Now, they say, obviously, they're not going to cut any corners in doing that. And so they say they are aiming right now for the middle of October to put it up for emergency approval. It could possibly be the end of October or the beginning of November, but they have big confidence in their vaccine candidate. Here's what the CEO told me. It has an excellent profile, and I consider this vaccine as a as as a vaccine which is near perfect, which has a near perfect profile. Yeah, uh, we have done done preclinical experiments. We have shown that this vaccine is able to protect animals from from infection in really tough challenge experiments, uh, and we have of course done much more more testing than we have published so far. And this provides us a lot of confidence uh, in combination with understanding of the mode of action, in combination with the safety data coming in from the running trial. Yes, we believe that we have a safe product and we believe that we will be able to show efficacy. So you see there, Ur Shahin, the CEO of BioNTech, a lot of confidence there in the BNT162 a vaccine candidate that they're working on right now. And they say, or he says, if everything goes according to their plan, they aim to be able to produce about 100 million doses of BNT162 this year, which first and foremost, of course, would go to these high-risk groups, like, for instance, medical professionals. Julia. Yeah, and very quickly, Fred, how long till it's widely available? Hmm. Well, that's the other thing. Obviously, 100 million doses sounds like a lot, but if you look at the world's population, it obviously isn't that much. So at first, it would be, as we said, medical professionals, perhaps elderly people as well, high-risk groups. They say in 2021, they aim to make about 1.3 billion doses. And obviously, that's where you're heading into some very, very large numbers where this vaccine then beginning of next year, middle of next year would be or become widely available to, uh, to, to folks in many countries. Fingers crossed. Fred, great work. Thank you so much for that. All right. One of the other stories making headlines around the world. Nearly two dozen wildfires are burning across California as we speak. High winds forecast in the coming hours are expected to fuel those flames. 
The most aggressive of those, the Creek Fire, remains uncontained. So far, more than 800,000 hectares have been scorched, a forestry official calling it an unprecedented disaster. Our hearts go out to all those involved. There's more First Move after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where we're bracing for fresh trouble in Techland this morning. Nasdaq futures now off by over 3% after a more than 6% drop between Thursday and Friday last week. Market watchers, many of them, at least insisting that as painful as this sell-off is, it's nothing more than a healthy consolidation of some of the recent gains. The pain, of course, mostly been focused so far on the handful of Nasdaq stocks that have outperformed the market since the spring. One stock, though, bucking the downward trend today, electric truck startup Nikola. It's soaring almost 30% pre-market on word that GM is taking an 11% stake and partnering on future production. Right, the nervousness, though, spreading elsewhere. Take a look at what we're seeing for the oil markets and for the bond markets, too. We've got sizable losses filtering in for Brent and WTI there and a bit of fright to safety here in some of U.S. Treasuries, the 10-year and the 30-year there. You can see the yields coming down as those prices rise as investors look for safer assets. Rishi Sharma is head of emerging markets at the chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. He's also the author of The Ten Rules Behind Successful Nations. And he joins us now from New Delhi. Rishi, fantastic to have you on the show as always. What do you make of what we're seeing here in tech, but more specifically across risk assets? Well, I think that, you know, we have had this major blow off in risk assets, as you know, over the last uh, few months. So, the fact that we get this sort of a period of uh, indigestion is not very surprising. For me, the really big uh, rotation will come when we start to see some rise in interest rates. I think that if we begin to see the long end of the curve begin to rise and interest rates begin to rise, that's when I think we will have a big problem because the single most important driver of risk assets, of these growth and momentum stocks, have, uh, has been low interest rates. Now, interest rates have stopped falling. So therefore, I think we've got this period of indigestion. But to really sort of feel uh, a major change in the market structure, once you begin to get a rise in interest rates, I think that we could see something much more severe than what we're seeing now. Rishi, when might that come, just given the sheer scale of the buying that the Federal Reserve is doing this year? They, they seemingly have zero intention of raising rates. So we're talking then about the, the sort of front end of the interest rate curve. It could take years before that kind of threat materializes, surely. Well, I think there are two sort of points here. One, I think that as and when we get more confirmation that we have the vaccine uh, which is going to lead to uh, uh, sort of mass immunization and herd immunity eventually. I think once we get signs of that, and it could, we have no idea when exactly it will be, but it could be in the next month or two, I think that could be the first sign that at least long-term interest rates begin to rise from the very depressed levels that they are now. The second big call, and this I think is a much longer discussion, is that I think that inflation comes back more quickly than what the market or people in general are expecting. For four decades, betting against uh, or betting in favor of rising inflation has been a losing bet, as you know. But finally, I think that we will begin to see inflation, given the sheer volume 
of monetary and fiscal support we've seen this time, and also some of the very long-term trends that have kept inflation in check, such as globalization, are now reversing. So I think it's a two-step process. Once we see confirmation of a vaccine, I think the very depressed level of long-term interest rates will snap back up, and that causes some problem, I think, for growth and momentum stocks. And the real churn in the market structure away from this very concentrated rally in growth and momentum and more towards value kind of stocks. That happens once interest rates begin to rise because of high inflation. And I suspect this could happen more quickly than we think. So possibly even as early as next year. So we could see the reverse of what we are seeing. This year, people have been confounded that we have seen such high stock prices, even though the economies have been very weak because of the pandemic. And that's really happened because interest rates are very low and liquidity is abundant. I suspect that next year we could see the opposite, that the economies come sharply back as the vaccine and the pandemic is behind us. But stocks struggle just because of the incredible support they've gone from liquidity and interest rates. And that support goes away next year. So there's still some time between where we are today and to your point, next year, perhaps, where we see that more dramatic rotation out of these growth stocks. Is what we see today in terms of pullbacks then a buying opportunity? I think it's very difficult to buy these stocks, especially some of these mega cap tech stocks, just because of the incredible run they have had. You know, this run in momentum and growth stocks, the only parallel we have to this is 1999. Yeah, it's very difficult to know whether we are already in December of 99 or, you know, this is still June of 99. (laughs) That game we can keep playing. You know, that's a very, very hard game for us uh, to sort of call. But I don't think that piling onto these stocks at this level is a worthwhile bet. What I think is, yes, there are still opportunities in the growth universe. You know, I've written extensively about some of the gaming companies uh, and also some of the other tech companies on that space. But I think if you had to really start planning for the next three to five years, buying some of the commodity stocks, and uh, I've been so bearish on commodities for so long, But for the first time, I feel that buying some of the commodity stocks on that end of the barbell, I think, is more attractive at this stage rather than piling on to these very expensively valued stocks that have had a blow off and they may still have another three months of spectacular gains to go. But this is very late to be piling on to that corner of the market. Oh, there's so many questions I could ask you here and I have to be careful about timing. Um, Gold then. Not a traditional commodity, clearly, but clearly at the same time, people are investing in gold for many of the things that you've discussed, whether it's concern about lack of control over monetary policy and the implications. We've also seen a lot of particularly Americans buying into digital assets, cryptocurrencies. What do you make of these two things, Rishir? Just a generational thing. I think some of the older lot are still buying gold and some of the younger ones are Uh, the millennials are buying more of the bitcoins and the cryptocurrencies, as you put it. But generally, I think what that's telling you is that there is this lingering feeling out there that given what central banks are doing in terms of uh, printing so much money, there is a search for alternative assets. So I think that these assets could keep doing well. Uh, Gold in particular does very well when interest rates adjusted for inflation are negative. And I see that environment carrying on for a while, because even when inflation comes back, the central banks are going to be much, much behind the curve before they do anything about it. So, yeah, gold is a very speculative asset. In the long term, stocks do much better than gold. In fact, I wrote an 
recent New York Times article about that, arguing that over the last 100 years, the return on stocks in inflation-adjusted terms has been 7% a year, U.S. stocks, that is, and gold has just given 1% or so a year. But I still feel <laughs> that in the next three to five years, gold does uh, relatively okay because there is this feeling out there that the central banks are printing so much money and we want some safety out there. So, yeah, uh, to have, you know, about 5% or so of your portfolio in gold is not a bad idea. And if you're a bit more adventurous, and I guess this is more to do with demographics, then obviously the search for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Oh, you know, and the other thing you teased there was uh, what's going on in gaming stocks. And I've run out of time, but I'm going to get you back because you do have some really pointed, punchy comments to make on this. And it ties to some of the big questions about the big tech companies and whether they're in trouble with regulators going forward. We shall reconvene, my friend. Great to have you on as always. Rishi Sharma of Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Likewise, the opening mail is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are up and running after the long holiday weekend. And there's no post-Labor Day leap on Wall Street. You are looking at pressure here. Tech stocks tumbling and testing the 10% correction levels once again. So that's a 10% pullback from recent highs. Volatility also on the rise. The VIX volatility index is up more than 14% now to its highest levels since mid-June, often called the fear gauge. It's also the price of options, the price of derivatives here. So you have to be careful with how you describe this at the moment, given the Nasdaq whale talks. Now, the suddenness of the Nasdaq's fall is what matters here too, having closed at record highs just last Wednesday. The sell-off, however, still making only a minor dent in the Nasdaq's more than 20% rally so far this year. That chart for context is what matters. Tesla shares, meanwhile, also suffering on word late Friday that they won't be entering the S&P 500 anytime soon. Investors, of course, have been buying into the stock in anticipation that it might make it in, and that would then fuel more buying. So some disappointing news there for Tesla fans. Disney, meanwhile, facing growing calls for a Mulan boycott. The newly released film is stirring controversy again after the end credits revealed it was partially filmed in Xinjiang, where China has been accused of mass human rights violations. Selena Wang joins us now from Hong Kong. Selena, it was already under some pressure after comments from the lead actress regarding the crackdown in Hong Kong and the pro-democracy protests there. Now they've got more trouble. Talk us through this. Yet again, and right after its release on Disney+, Plus, it is facing renewed calls for a boycott. This backlash is tied to the end credits of the film that thank several Chinese government entities in the western region of Xinjiang. This is where the U.S. has accused China for detaining up to 2 million Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities. China has repeatedly denied those claims, and on Tuesday, the foreign ministry said that they are vocational training centers and they are part of China's counterterrorism efforts. Now, I did speak to an expert at the Aegis Society who said the following to me. It is, quote, deeply disturbing that Disney thought it was okay to partner with and also thank government departments from a region in China that is complicit with genocide. Now, as you referred to earlier, these are not new calls for boycotts. Last year, 
the lead actress, Liu Yifei, had made some comments supporting the Hong Kong police during the protests, which led to a massive backlash online and from activists. Now, China is critical not only to Disney, but also to Mulan. It's an extremely lucrative market for Hollywood, but it also comes with some compromises, including studios having to censor their content. But it was predicted prior to COVID by PwC that China would overtake the U.S. this year to become the world's largest film market. But when I speak to experts, some of them say that we're coming up against a time where American film studios may need to choose between either servicing the U.S. or the Chinese market because it's harder to appease both. Yeah, you simply can't uh, please both sides here. I guess I will make the point that the film's director... Uh, Nikki Caro was showing pictures on social media back in 2017 when they were scouting locations. And, you know, if we think when this was filmed, it was a lot earlier than uh, than what we're seeing today. And this subject of the Uyghur Muslims wasn't so front and centre. I'm not excusing them, but I guess we have to make a timing point here. What about people downloading this movie, Selena? What are we seeing? Is this having any kind of suppressive effect? Julia, that is right. But there was evidence when they were scouting these locations that this mass internment was allegedly happening. And you're right, the production team have also given some uh, interviews where they have mentioned they spent months scouting potential locations. But there is a little bit of bright news when it comes to those app downloads. Mulan took this very controversial decision to delay the theatrical release and go straight to streaming on Disney+. Plus. According to research from Sensor Tower, the app downloads from September 4th to the 6th jumped 68% from a weekend prior. And if you take a look at the consumption, consumer spending in the app, that also sparked, spiked nearly 200%. And that can be attributed to customers paying that $30 fee to watch Mulan. Now, the pandemic has prompted these Hollywood studios to look at different types of unconventional release strategy. And while this preliminary data looks promising, it is still early to say just how successful this strategy is going to be. Yes, no judgment yet, but plenty of judgment on the location of this movie. Selena, great to have you with us. Selena Wang reporting there. All right, the U.S. travel industry heavyweights have banded together to reboot tourism and inspire Americans. Today, they launch a campaign called Let's Go There, urging us to get on with planning a future trip, even if we don't know when we'll actually be able to do it. Joining us now is Roger Dow, president and CEO of the U.S. Travel Association. Roger, great to have you with us. I know this is a culmination of months of work for the travel industry to really understand what the message should be. It's a case of balancing safety with survival, really, for the industry. Talk us through it. Well, exactly, Julia. The first thing we had to do as an industry uh, is make sure that health and safety is there. So everyone in the industry got together and put out guidance for everything they're doing. And right now, being on an airplane is probably safer than being anywhere else, obviously more than the grocery store even. Uh, but once we had that in place, then we had to talk about getting people to plan and think about traveling. Uh, we've done a lot of research that shows when people even think about and plan the trip, uh, 97% are happier. Uh, but we had to make sure we had the right message. We didn't want to be tone deaf, so we had to make sure our message is, when it's time for you, we'll be ready. And the whole industry is getting behind this. I think also, Roger, we have to understand the importance of this as a sector for the U.S. economy. It represents one in 10 American jobs. I believe 35 percent of those have have been lost. Do you have any sense from those that you speak to in the industry how many of those losses could become permanent job losses? It's very concerning because uh, 
as you said, the travel industry re represents one in 10 jobs, which is 16 million jobs. Eight million have been out of work. Uh, I think it's going to come back slowly. Hopefully, we'll get at least half of them back by the end of the year. But until travel comes back, the economy will not come back. Everything in the economy is tied to someone going somewhere, either leisure, business, or a meeting. And I, I think a lot of people will be watching this and going, we understand the importance, the understand the importance to the economy of, of jobs. But what about for consumers here? We don't really have an industry norm. If you book a trip at this stage and then you feel happy about it, you've also got the uncertainty of perhaps having to cancel it in future. Will I get my money back? What about insurance? How are you handling that aspect, Roger? I think that's very important. I think the U.S. airlines all made a very smart and bold move last uh, week or two when they said they will not uh, charge change fees anymore. The cruise industry is allowing great flexibility, so therefore they're seeing bookings for 2021 going way up, and that's very important. We've, we can't be tone deaf. We've got to be consumer smart, and the consumer has to know I can book a trip, and if things change due to COVID or my situation, I can change my trip. Yeah, they do. They have to have the, you have to be flexible. Everybody has to be flexible here. All this campaign, as positive as perhaps it can be, it simply doesn't work. Roger, I mentioned that this is about Americans traveling domestically. How important was the international tourism and travelers coming to the United States, providing the revenues to all of these companies too? Because that's something that's deeply challenged and will remain so perhaps until we get a vaccine. You're absolutely right, Julia. International travel is a huge uh, export for us. When someone buys a trip, it's just like them buying a U.S. computer. It's $250 billion a year, and that's basically ground down to zero. Uh, World Travel and Tourism Council says the U.S. will lose uh, upwards of $200 billion this year. And the reason we like international travel so much is the international visitor stays longer. They stay 16 uh, nights. They spend more. They spend an average of $4,500 per person. The Chinese spend almost $7,000 per person. And uh, it's also great for global understanding. When you travel somewhere, I don't care where it is around the world, you realize people are just like each other anywhere in the world. They care about their family, they care about their children doing better, and they care about seeing new things. That's such a great point. Cultural, better cultural understanding is fostered by international travel. And we lack that right now. You certainly do. Roger, this is clearly a competitive industry. It's always been a competitive industry. And you're pulling together some of the biggest names that are saying, look, we want to work together here to foster greater travel and to encourage people to book trips. Once we get through this, does that level of competition return? Absolutely. Uh, right now, the industry is coming together. All the major airlines, American, Delta, uh, United are on there. The hotel companies, Marriott, Hyatt, Hilton, Lowe's. American Express, Visa, Chase, uh, even Pepsi-Cola and suppliers, uh, Visit California. They're all in this together because once people get traveling again, then they can worry about what airline they fly on, where they go, and how they pay for it and where they stay. So if you're trying to encourage people to feel happier, to book trips as a result of this yeah. ad campaign, what kind of bargains can they find? How much cheaper are hotel stays, travel in the United States as a result of what we've been through? Right now, there's some, some great value out there, uh, both on airlines, uh, hotels, cruise lines, uh, great bargains. They're not going to last long. Uh, but on the, on the other side, I'm noticing that like beach locations are very popular, 
are still high priced because everyone wants to go to the beaches and the outdoors. Uh, so my advice to people is book that trip now. Think about it. You can always change it. But the bottom line, grab those bargains while they're out there. We'll see, Roger. Are people actually booking cruises? Yes, uh, people are booking cruises for 2021 in in great numbers. Uh, There's a very loyal group of people who go on cruises, and they understand that cruise ships are as clean and hygiene uh, specific as they can be. Cruise lines have been through many times of things from Legionnaire's disease and things like that, and they know what they're doing, and they're going to be even better. And the the people who are cruisers are saying, I know they're going to have their act together. Ooh, I think there's plenty of people after what we went through in the early stages of the pandemic that will be sceptical. But uh, the hope is that yeah. <laughs> we've learned lessons. Roger Dow, fantastic to have you with us. President and CEO of the yeah. U.S. Thank Travel you. Association. So thank you. All right. After 15 years at the helm of British Airways and IAG, it's Willie Walsh's final day on the job. He will be succeeded by Iberia's current CEO and Richard Quest diplomatically suggested to Walsh that he perhaps wasn't the most popular leader the firm's ever had. Listen in. But you don't do this job to be popular, you know. Um, and I've always been clear on that. You know, I've, I realised very early on in my career that if you were to run your business to satisfy the press or to be popular with people, you would go out of business because, it's a, you know, the airline industry is brutally competitive. And to succeed, you have to be prepared to take decisions that are unpopular. And I think that's what leadership is about. You know, good leaders will will face up to difficult challenges. I know lots of people uh, who, when it comes to the crunch, don't like to give bad news and don't like to face difficult uh, decisions. Uh, I've never had a problem with that. And that may come from my training as a pilot, you know, where you don't have the opportunity to put everything on hold and wait for people to decide what you do. You, you have to, uh, as a pilot and particularly as a captain, you have to be ready to make decisions uh, and, you know, to assess everything quickly, uh, make decisions in the interests of safety and move on. So, um, you know, I, 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 I've never sought to be popular and, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm popular <laughs> with my friends, but, um, you know, I probably have fewer than most people. Stay with CNN for more of Richard Quest's interview with IAG boss Willie Walsh. That's coming up on Quest Means Business at 3 p.m. Eastern on CNN. All right, we're going to take a break. But tough talk from Germany over the poisoning of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. If Russia doesn't investigate, German officials say work on the Nord Stream gas pipeline may come to a halt. Really? Details after the break. Welcome back to First Move. Germany increasing pressure on Russia to investigate the poisoning of the opposition politician Alexei Navalny. German officials say a pipeline delivering Russian gas to Germany could be halted if Russia doesn't provide answers. The project has been under construction since 2018 and will be very lucrative for Russia, not to mention that German companies have invested in it too. CNN's John Defterius joins us from Abu Dhabi with more. John, what do we make of this? I can't help but feel Angela Merkel. Germany is a nation too invested in this. It was supposed to be delivering gas as of early next year. Credible threat? Yeah, I'm not sure, Julia, to be mm. honest with you. I see Germany is toughening uh, its stance, right? Uh, but whether that uh, translates into a cancellation of the pipeline, I think, is a big stretch. If you listen to the language carefully, they're talking about 
perhaps suspending the pipeline right now or freezing operations. Uh, even the economy minister today on German radio, Peter Altemeyer, was not even supporting sanctions. So this has a long ways to go. But one consultant who does energy contracts told me, look, don't bet against politics because things can shift. Uh, in this case, we have to follow the project and the money, right? It's better than 90% uh, complete, $11 billion on the table. It's being blocked by U.S. sanctions, ironically. That's why they're not uh, seeing gas flowing until 2021. Uh, but if you look at the five energy companies that are invested in the project, two are German, uh, and the others are French, Austrian, and British. So do they really want to cut out their partners here uh, for the sake of Alexei Navalny? It sounds cynical, but that's the case. Then enter Donald Trump into the equation, Julia. Uh, he's playing the security card, if you will, NATO, and saying that Russia has way too much influence over the European Union and Germany. Let's take a listen to him. When I came along, I said, wait a minute. We're protecting Germany from Russia, right? NATO. We're protecting Germany from Russia. Germany's paying Russia billions and billions of dollars to get their energy. And the real number is probably 60 to 70 percent ultimately of their energy is going to come from Russia. So Donald Trump uh, throws out a lot of numbers, as you know, Julia. Uh, this time they're pretty accurate. 30 to 40 percent now, although there's no official figures published anymore because of the sensitivities, rising to 60 to 70 percent. What he did leave out here is the primary motivation of the United States, and that is to export U.S. LNG to Europe coming out of the uh, Gulf of Mexico around Corpus Christi and uh, the Sabine Pass. They spent billions of dollars building and he's looking for new markets. Now to prevent that penetration by the US, Gazprom's been cutting prices since 2018 and 19 to hold on to its market share because Europe is its biggest market despite the inroads it's made into China. Yeah, and of course, this pipeline also split opinions in the EU, too, with nations like Poland saying, why on earth are we increasing our energy reliance on Russia at a terribly mm. difficult moment? Um, but there's more than one pipeline, John. I need you to explain this. We're talking about Nord Stream 2. What about Nord Stream 1? Because this is, what, 10, 15 years of history we're talking about between Russia and Germany. Yeah, great question you're bringing up because it does stretch back uh, to 2005. So mark that ah. as your uh, suggestion here. 15 years signed by the uh, predecessor of Angela Merkel uh, being uh, Gerhard Schroeder. He's on the board of Nord Stream, uh, runs the supervisory board committee as well for shareholders, Julia. This is very tightly knit. Even though Angela Merkel's had strained relations with Vladimir Putin, 2015, I chaired a panel with them in St. Petersburg, uh, in Russia. Despite those tensions, despite the sanctions by Germany, they still signed Nord Stream 2 at the same time. That's geopolitics. Yes, contentious as it may be. John, very quickly, what do you think we're seeing in oil? Uh, we're seeing prices down, Julia, looking now what six and a quarter percent, seven and a half percent on WTI. It's not complicated. This is the second wave biting into demand, the fears of it. Already over the weekend, we saw Saudi Aramco cut prices. Uh, I've seen in the last hour that Abu Dhabi at Adnoc, the state operator, is doing the same. There's real concerns again that the downturn in oil demand is going to continue well through 2021. Yeah, that's the message from the markets today. Always simple when you explain it, John. Thank you. John Defteris in Abu Dhabi for us there. Thank you. <laughs> All right. After the break, a healthy pullback or a sign of more trouble to come. The latest on the tech turbulence coming up. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. What a difference a few days can make, at least on Wall Street. The Nasdaq was sitting at record highs less than a week ago. Today, it's down more than 3% and nearing 10% correction levels. Paul and Monica is back with us. Paul, yes, that's happened very swiftly. But then if I show the chart year to date, context is everything. In the grand scheme of things, this index has had a bumpy year. Yeah, without question. I mean, Julia, we have had the Nasdaq plunge along with the rest of the market in March when coronavirus really became reality in the United States. But then we had this rapid recovery. You mentioned earlier on the show that the Federal Reserve has come to the rescue many times. And I think that coupled with some of the stimulus that we got from Congress and the White House obviously helped resource restore some confidence in the U.S. economy as well. And tech stocks, earnings had been fantastic for the likes of Apple, Amazon, the FANG companies, plus Microsoft and Tesla. And I think that is a reason why techs rallied to the extent that they did. But now you have worries that they maybe went too far too fast. And Masasan at SoftBank is perhaps getting burned. And that is a big problem, I think, for the broader market right now. Yeah, it's a reality check or an unreality check before the stock splits. And I think the reactions to Tesla and Apple there was just completely bonkers. Apple was worth the entire market cap of the Russell 2000. We had Tesla worth the equivalent of Ford, GM, BMW, Volkswagen, Fiat Chrysler, Toyota and Honda and sells less than 10 percent of the cars. Really? Yeah, the value <laughs> clearly were stretched, very, very stretched. And I think you can make the reasonable argument that this isn't 2000 all over again because the companies that have led the way up are healthy companies with strong balance sheets for the most part. But that still doesn't mean that valuations can't become exorbitant and irrational, which they were. Yeah, I also think that the Fed's moved here means that no company is um, too big to fail here. Every company's too big to fail. Everything will be supported. The question is, can we do the same for consumers? Back to our earlier point. Paul, always great to chat to you. Thank you so much for that. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.